Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. to be back with you guys. It's good to not be laying on a camp mattress in my tent. That's what it's actually good. We survived uh, survival camp, so thank you for your prayers. Uh, so I, I got a question for you as we start into this new series here. It's a real simple question. It's just simply this. How does the church grow? Some may say it's because of the facilities. Um, some say it's a, some kind of a programming aspect. Maybe it's, maybe it's children's ministry or it's our student ministry. And, and those are our big ones. Yeah, I can tell you with all honesty, with two kids in our children's ministry right now, I mean, they're back there right now. I, man, I fully appreciate the support and the love and the teaching they surround our kids with week after week after week. Uh, some people might say it's the, it's the services, that's why people come, that's how you grow a church. You have a great, you know, you have a great weekend service, and, and maybe for some of you, worship, man, that's one of the things that just really helps you uh, as the, the, the band helps us connect emotionally and kind of focus in. Maybe it's, maybe it's the teaching aspect. What do you think? How does the church grow? All the above? What makes it grow? Numerically, how, how does it grow in discipleship? How does it grow in godliness? Now, none of those things are bad or wrong. I believe the time and energy that our volunteers put in week after week after week is so important for us uh, to be productive, and, and I think that it's really important. I, I believe that, that worship is important. I believe that teaching is really important. I, I, I think this facility, I think our location has been helpful. But at the end of the day, I don't think any of those things that we just talked about and most of the things that so many of us, when we gather around as church leaders and as pastors that we talk about, about strategies on how to grow the church, I don't, I honestly, I don't believe they're the primary reason a healthy church grows. Practically speaking, we grow because God, through his people, through other Christ followers, invests in us and invites us in. Is that true? Yeah. yeah, think about it for a second. I mean, think about your own story. I know a lot of you are here because you were invited to be a part of adventure. Now, a few of you wandered in. A few of you are strays. We love you. But, but here's, what I, here's, what I would, here's what I would bet. I would hazard a guess. You didn't stay long without having some relationships, without having a table with some people to hang out with. That's just, that's how it works. God is invested in you through a Christ followers or even more likely through several uh, who have invited you into relationship, who have been with you, who have been part of a community of Christ followers. Now, not only is that the way that, that, that people seem to connect to Christ here and now, it's also the way that, that God has been growing the church since its inception. Now, to go back to the beginning, we're going to go back to uh, the, the beginning of the book of John. 
There were four people who wrote down the story of Jesus' life, and uh, one of them was a guy named John. And he was also, he ended up kind of being one of Jesus' closest friends and, and followers. So John starts off his account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry with another John. Some of you are already confused. Lots of Johns in the Bible. So the Apostle John is going to start off talking about another John known as John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. Now, he wasn't free will. He wasn't Southern. We're not talking about the denomination. Just this is part of what he did. And he was working within his own ministry. So John the Baptizer was focused on getting people ready for the coming Messiah. That was that was what God had called him to. This was a big deal. People had been waiting for the Messiah for a very long time. And John seemed to be the first prophet that God had sent in, in quite literally hundreds of years. So John the Baptist comes onto the scene. It, it, it's a big spectacle. Huge crowds are coming out to see this guy, to listen to him, to be baptized by him in the river. And the Apostle John then records the moment where everything changes. Look at John uh, 129. It's there in your listening guide. It says, so the next day, John saw, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points Jesus out specifically. Now, again, big, big deal. This would have caught everybody's attention that's out in the crowd. Matter of fact, part of the reason why it would have been such a big deal, because in that day and age, that statement is blasphemy, right? That, that statement could get you stoned. They recognized that only God could take away sin. Anything else was blasphemy. We, we know this to be true. Later, as you go through, again, those, those four, uh, four accounts of Jesus' ministry, we find a few different times where Jesus says something very similar himself about him, and there are crowds of people who respond violently against him for that very reason. They know that. We know that they know that because of how they respond later. So John would have caught their attention by saying this. And so when Jesus shows up at this point, he's got exactly zero followers. He's just a guy walking into this. This is the very, 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 very beginning of his ministry. And John, again, the author of the gospel, records what happens then the next day. Look at John 135 through 39. So the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Here's kind of the interesting part. So John the Baptist had his own disciples Guess who two of them were? Well, one of them was John, the author. John, who's going to become the apostle, all right? So that's who he's talking about here. As Jesus walked by, John the Baptist looked at him and declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. So he points him out again. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And Jesus looked around and saw them following and said, what do you want? They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. Now, if somebody that you've never met before is out in the parking lot and they're following you around, like that's it just, I, and I'm not encouraging you to like invite them for, for, for lunch today. That's a little creepy in our world, right? Run from stalkers is a great, I'd say a good rule to live by. But here's, somebody's gonna write that down. So 
here's what was going on. So in that day, the preferred method of learning wasn't to go into a classroom and listen to a teacher lecture. What you did is you followed that teacher around day to day. You wanted to, to glean life experience from them because the goal was not just to learn information. The goal was to see, okay, you say this is how you're supposed to live. Now, how do you do it? Right? I, I, don't just give me a sermon. Like, I want to walk around with you all day. And again, I'm not inviting you to do that. Don't be following me around, right? But, but I mean, this was the thing. This is how discipleship does work. We'll talk about that. I, I want to follow you around. And they're looking to glean experience from them, to see how their philosophies, their theology actually work in the real world. So Jesus' first followers become his first followers simply because they were invited to what? Come and see. It's exactly what Jesus said, right? Hey, you guys are interested? You want to know where I'm going? Come and see. Come follow. Let's go. Scripture says they hung out with Jesus for the rest of the day. What's the result of hanging out with Jesus for a day? Well, check out the first thing that Andrew does, John 1, 41 through 42. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, man, we found the Messiah. And then Andrew brought Simon to beat Jesus. So what does he immediately do? He went and he found his brother and said, I have had the most incredible day. Man, you gotta come meet this guy. And we've all done this before, all of us. This is how our lives work. Y you have an experience with someone or something, and as soon as you're done, you get on the phone, you get on social media, you message a friend, and you go, man, you won't believe what I just went through. You won't believe this experience that I just had. This was amazing. You've got to come see this. You've got to experience this for yourself, right? That's how we operate. That's what we do. That's exactly what Andrew did. Makes perfect sense. Now, the next day, Jesus decided to head to Galilee which is in the northern part of Israel. It's about a 60-mile track from where they were to Galilee, and they had to hoof that on foot. I, no, no vehicles, no buses, none of that. I, I don't know about you, but 60 miles is a fairly significant walk for me. According to Google Maps, that would be like us leaving the building, getting out on 80, and walking on 80 all the way to the, uh, the Tiffin uh, rest area, which is just past Coralville. All right, so that, that, I mean, that's... It's a fairly significant walk. That's a, even more so, that's a pretty good haul to, to walk on the whim of a guy you just met yesterday, right? Have you ever thought about that? These are the realities of the story we don't think about. Hey, friend that I met yesterday, want to go on a walk with me? Sure. Let's go for 20 hours together. Have you ever spent 20 hours traveling with someone? It is a quick way to know whether you want to hang out with them anymore. That is, a, uh, that is a bit long for a day-long relationship. This is an investment. That's exactly what Jesus does. He invites Philip to come along as well. Philip does the same thing that Andrew did. He runs off and he invites a guy named Nathaniel. It's there in John 1, 43 through 46. Again, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, explained Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Look what he says. Come and see for yourself. 
When Philip invites Nathaniel to go on a 60-mile trip with a guy he's only known for a day, he kind of turns it into a bit of a joke. <laughs> Why would it go on a trip to Nazareth? Which, by the way, that's in Galilee. That's where they're going. It's like inviting somebody to walk with you to Clinton. It's not that it can't be done, but like you got to have a really good reason. I am sorry for anybody who's from Clinton right now. Do we draw from Clinton? All right, you're online. Um, <laughs> I, I think at this point, there was probably a pause in the conversation. As, as Philip tries to figure out, how do you explain to somebody this, this th- he, he made a really bold statement. I think we found the Messiah. I think we found the guy Moses was talking about. How do you explain that, especially after 24 hours of knowing somebody? How do you explain buying into something to that depth that fast? What does he say? Again, how, how does he convince him? Philip realized that just telling him about that experience wasn't going to be enough. So again, what does he do? He invites him, come and see for yourself. You got to experience this. This is how they became the first followers of Jesus. Andrew inviting Peter, Philip inviting Nathaniel, Jesus inviting all of them simply to come and see, to come and experience something. And, and by the way, it didn't end there. If, if you keep reading through those Gospels, this is how all the followers of Jesus came to be his followers. Real simple strategy. People simply invited to come and see for themselves. Come and experience something that was life-changing. Man, I think I found what I've been looking for. I think I found what we've been looking for. I, I think I've discovered the answer we've been, we've been seeking. I think I've found truth and grace and acceptance and a new start. And I can't explain it to you. You've simply, you got to come experience this for yourself. Jesus' followers grew from a few dozen to a few hundred to a few thousand as people came to experience what other people were experiencing. And I need to pause here and jump ahead, way forward into the future, past Jesus' death and resurrection, past the beginning of the church, as the church grew and grew and grew, spreading the good news about Jesus, got a big churchy name, that word evangelism. There was a lot of baggage depending on your experience with it. For me, it kind of sends chills up my spine. <laughs> For a lot of us, it doesn't have a good connotation. You know, in its original context from the Greek, it's a word that means spreading the good news or one who spreads the good news. And that's exactly what was happening in the beginning. But what we tend to do, and I don't know why we do this for sure, I I don't know how much of it is cultural, I don't know how much of it is just being a human, but what we tend to do is take things that are simple and relational and try to turn them into a program, which very often has the effect of making that simple thing very complex and very unwieldy, and you start to forget the whole point of why you're doing it to begin with. You know, the other and even more simpler way to translate out the, the, the Greek word there is an enthusiastic advocate. When somebody new comes into town, where do you take them? Whitey's, right? Take them to have Whitey's ice cream. You know what? The very first time I entered in the Quad Cities, I was in college from Kentucky, and guess where they took us the very first night? Whitey's ice cream. It was good. 
We talked about it later, like we remembered it. We do this all the time with all kinds of different experiences. Because what most of us realize, and maybe, maybe it's not even really a conscious thing, it's a subconscious thing, is that words aren't enough to convince people of much of anything. Words are cheap, right? If you want somebody to love something that you love, you gotta convince them to come try it, to come experience it for themselves. Hey, can I just tell you, you are an evangelist for something. Everybody in this room, you are evangelists for certain things. All of us are. Some of you are the best evangelists around for truck manufacturers, for clothing brands, for sports and nutrition supplements. And the list goes on and on and on. Your social media feed announces what you love and what you're sold out to. Jesus' first followers operated the same way. They weren't trying to convince people with words alone. It sounds silly when you just use words alone. They were simply inviting people to come and see. See, the goal of what God has called us to isn't to explain something. It's to experience someone. Jesus has to be experienced. That's a starting point. Why? Because we're called into relationship. Not, we're, not just, we're not called into a philosophy. We're not just called into a, a religious movement. That's not what Jesus came to establish. That's, that's not what he came to offer. What did he come to offer? Relationship. And frankly, you can't explain him to me just like you can't fully explain why you're with your spouse. Why you love your spouse. Like, that's something that has to be experienced. It's not something you can just put into words. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message about the cross doesn't make any sense to lost people. For those of us who are being saved, it's God's power at work. That's what that's saying. His grace and his mercy, man, God's love don't make sense when you just try to explain it, when you use words alone. They're things that have to be experienced. You can find what we call the Great Commission in Matthew uh, 28. Jesus gives us our, our purpose, kind of our prime directive there. It continues on today. And Jesus basically says this, go to people, engage with them. And you know what's kind of interesting in that, that, that commission he gives us? In the Great Commission, experiencing discipleship comes before teaching them obedience. I find that fascinating. And then that doesn't really start in earnest until a bit later when the Holy Spirit engaged with the world to experience him through them. And this has been the model ever since. So let's go back to that original question for a minute. How does the church grow? God's primary growth strategy is his light shining through our lives. Boy, that's kind of humbling. It's, <laughs> it's a bit scary. Let me say this. God can work in any way that he wants to, all right? There are people who I believe that God is drawing to himself in miraculous ways around the world right now, and they haven't met you or I or another believer. We, we have so many stories of God, how God has introduced himself to seeking people that I would never presume to try to limit God by saying he has to use you or me. 
But what I will say is this. Scripture makes really clear that his primary plan, the normal way he operates, is to use you and I. We're going to dive into that a bit more next week. We're going to spend a lot of time kind of going through that. For, for now, let me just suggest a few realities that I think we need to wrestle with if God is going to be able to use us to draw people to himself. If come and see is the method God normally uses, I mean, what does that mean for me? Well, the first reality is, is that my relationship with God is my starting point in how I do this. Let's get this out of the way real quick. What qualifies you to be used by God? What's qualifications that are needed? Simply put, your relationship with Jesus. If you've accepted Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you, and as you follow and obey the Holy Spirit, he's going to provide what you need to accomplish what God has for you to do. Some of you, either because of your own inner dialogue, maybe because somebody else has convinced you that you aren't enough, that, that, that God can't use you. Because you aren't perfect, because you don't have some degree, because you haven't been in church long enough, you haven't been a disciple long enough, whatever. Let me let you in on a little secret. None of us are, none of us are qualified on our own. I'm not, Tony's not, you're not, Mark's not, Greg's definitely not. None of us are. Even the apostle Paul recognized God works through our weaknesses. That's, that's why he, he lets us into this dialogue he had with God in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he's, he says, each time God told me, my grace is all you need, my power works best in what? Weakness. Fascinating. If you're a follower of Jesus, can I just tell you, you are qualified to talk about your experience with him. Is that fair? Simple enough? Your story, I, look, I'm not going to argue your, your story and how you came to a relationship with God and what your experience has been with. I, that's your story. That's, that you are uniquely qualified to have that conversation. That's your starting point. That's how you invite others. Now, that doesn't mean that learning and growing are, aren't part of the responsibility God's called us to, just that your story is your starting point. That leads to something else. Second thing then is recognizing that I really need to pay attention to my own come and see journey. John 15, verse five, and then verse eight, jumping to verse eight. Jesus told his disciples, John being one of them, this, I'm the vine and you're the branches and those who live in me while I live in them will produce great fruit in their life. Without me, you don't have the ability to produce any fruit of your own. When your life bears fruit, your discipleship is evident and both bring glory to God. One of my favorite encounters with Jesus in the Bible is when he meets a woman at a well in, uh, in a region called Samaria. And he, he's at this, this village. He kind of walks onto it with his disciples. They head on into, into town to go find some bread. He stops at a well. You can read about it in John 4 later. Um, I'll just give you the real short kind of version of it right now. So Jesus sits down at this well outside of this village with people, by the way, it's probably important to tell you, who have a long-standing feud with people like him who are Jewish. They don't like each other at all. And, and this woman comes to this well in the middle of the day and he asks her for a drink. 
which is totally out of bounds for two reasons. One, because she's a Samaritan and a good Jewish person has nothing to do with Samaritans. I mean, good Jewish person would walk away and get, you know, like 70 feet away from them and just not even come close to them. But also in that culture, men were not allowed to interact with lone females. That wasn't proper in a Jewish village or a Samaritan one. And so he gets in the, into this conversation with her about her life. And he gently calls, out, calls her out on her life. And he tells her, look, I, I'm the Messiah that you guys have been waiting for for so long. And it's a pretty amazing encounter that you need to read. We might get into it here in a couple of weeks. But look at what happened after she met him. Look at this, John 4, 28-30. The woman left her water jar beside the well. She ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So that people came streaming from the village to see him. Now then jump to John 4, 39-42. We'll get the end of the story. Many Samaritans from this village believed in Jesus because the woman had said he told me, thing, told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. And so he stayed for two days, long enough for many to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what? What you told us, your words, Right? but because we've heard him ourselves. We've, we've encountered him. We've experienced him. Now we know he's indeed the savior of the world. You see how this follows our pattern? Look at that last verse. Again, we, we came to see him because of what you told us about your encounter. Now we've had our encounter, and we believe too. This is a town harlot why she was at the well by herself in the middle of the day when no other, no other women were there. She didn't have a good reputation in the village, just the opposite. So why in the world did anybody believe her? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought about that story from that angle? It's in there. Her enthusiasm was contagious and her change was already evident. Can I make a couple of suggestions to you that I know are true based on what I've seen and experienced, but also what we see in scripture? First one is this. Nobody will ever buy into something you're not excited about. Nobody is gonna buy what you're selling if you aren't excited about it. It is the way it is. You know what the etymology of the word enthusiasm is, where that word comes from? We get our English word enthusiasm from two Greek words, en, which means in or inside, and theos, which we translate as God. Enthusiasm was, was used to describe people who had the spirit of God within them. That's what that word originally meant. They looked at somebody and they're like, they're, they're a bit nuts. They're a bit excited. They're, they're a bit like Greg. They have enthusiasm. It seems like there's a spirit of God in them. They woo too much. <laughs> I love them. Can I tell the story about the funeral? So, <laughs> so a few weeks, I don't know, a couple of months ago probably, we did a, a funeral and Greg was there and he was going to speak and we were standing talking to a woman who was going to sing and uh, I was like, all right, what songs are you going to sing? We're trying to figure out where they go in the order of the service. And one of them was Amazing Grace. And Greg was like, oh, I love Amazing Grace. Like, I, I just, I don't know if I'll make it through it. And we walked away and I looked at Greg and I said, you will not woo Amazing Grace at a funeral. <laughs> that, is, that is where I draw the line. That is a rule. 
if I'm doing the funeral, there's no wooing amazing grace at a funeral. All right. <laughs> I love Greg, by the way. You know, a lot of us were really excited when we first came into a relationship with God. But for many of us, that excitement is gone. Can I tell you why so many churches aren't growing? Their people aren't excited about what God's doing in their own lives, and they aren't excited about what's happening in their church community. It really is that simple. If you have no enthusiasm for what God is doing in your life or among the believers you hang out with, maybe God isn't as present in your life as you would like to think. Certainly nobody else is going to be attracted to what you have in your life if your life is just as bad as theirs. Second thing is, if I'm not growing and changing, then what about my life is, with God is attractive to other people? It's, again, a simple question. Man, people are looking for answers. Everybody in this world is looking for answers. We all know deep down we don't have stuff figured it out. And anybody who does is a narcissist. I, I mean, the, the reality is we all know we're missing some stuff. We all know we're all looking for, for answers. And we get interested in people who seem like they may have stumbled on the answers to the things, man, that are breaking us. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 talks about what God will do in our lives if we let him, what the Holy Spirit will produce, the fruit he's going to produce in our lives. It says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I know everybody in the world wants a million bucks. Everybody in the world wants a new car, the bigger house, the stuff. We're all searching for, I believe, the search for happiness is the biggest addiction that our culture, and specifically the United States, that, that's what, we are addicted to trying to find happiness. But you know what? Deep down, aren't what people really looking for are those things listed out in that passage? Yeah. Let me just ask this. Does your life show growth in those areas? Do the people around you see you growing in that? If you look at the early church, they were under persecution. They couldn't meet openly. They had to hide the title Christian. Church services were in secret, and yet they grew exponentially. No big political movements. No campaigns. No programs. No church buildings. History shows us that they grew because their lives were different and their lives were better, like in quality, than other people that were around them and it, therefore they were attractive. Something about them was really attractive to the people around them. And so even though they couldn't say we're Christians, people came to them and were like, man, you seem to have something that I don't. What is it? Same thing's happening in China and in India and in Africa and other parts of the world where, where the church is growing the fastest, ironically, is where it is in, it's in the greatest persecution. Maybe part of the reason the American church has declined is because we got so focused on buildings and on titles and on movements and political movements and, and programs 
And we forgot that this, we forgot this come and see model of evangelism, that our lives are meant to be the thing that shines light into the world and it's supposed to be attractional. Third thing, if I'm not inviting other people to come and see what I found in Jesus, I'm not participating in God's work. That's harsh, I know, feels a bit like a slap, but it's true. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that great commission I was talking about earlier, can I read it to you? When Jesus came near, he spoke to them, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So wherever you go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything I have commanded you. God has a purpose for his disciples, and he's made it really clear what it is. We're going to spend some more time on this in the, in the next few weeks, talking through this mission we've been given. But I want to invite you not just to think about what this means for us individually. I also want to invite you to pray with me that God would give us wisdom and enthusiasm and conviction together. Because you know what? The church is way bigger than just you and me and just adventure. And just the church in Davenport and on and on it goes in this world needs exactly what God has to offer. I'll leave you with this passage to chew on. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Boy, we need to hear that. It's not just what we say, it's the words we choose and how we do it so that you'll have the right response for everyone. That's the mission. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're on it. That's part of what being a disciple means. Let's pray that God will help us to do it. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here. I thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of the church. And I know I've said it before, I don't know why you use me. I don't know why you use any of us. But because of your love, you choose to use us. Every per person in this room has a purpose. You've given every one of us in this room a mission. And as we experience life that grows in you, as we experience more joy and peace and faithfulness and goodness and joy and all the things that your Holy Spirit produces in our lives, Father, I just simply pray that, man, our lives would show that. Our speech would show that. What we type would show that. How we interact with our friends and, and, and even with people that we don't know. Father, that it would show that. You've done amazing things through history. As we look back on the history of the church, it is amazing to see what you've done. And you've primarily done it through your people. And Father, I just invite you to do that through us. Father, I, I pray that those of us who need to be humbled in some area, maybe we're arrogant, maybe, maybe the way that we speak to people isn't very kind. Maybe we tell them the truth, but the way we tell them just turns people off. Maybe, uh, maybe we believe all of this, but we've been convinced that we're not really supposed to show any of it in our life, and so we just kind of go along so we don't make any waves, so we don't look different. Father, whatever it is that is, is getting in the way of us being a part of this, this mission that you've called us to, Father, I pray that we would leave that behind simply submit and I pray 
Not that we make disciples, not that we force them or coerce them. But Father, I pray that you will make disciples just through our lives, the way that you do it. Father, again, I thank you so much for loving us and choosing us. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray.